Welcome everyone to PandaPod, the National Disability Rights Network podcast where we focus on all things related to protection and advocacy for people with disabilities and advancing the rights of people with disabilities. I'm Amanda Lowe, Senior Public Policy Analyst here at NDRN, and this year we're absolutely thrilled to be releasing three podcasts in celebration of National Disability Employment Awareness Month, or as we call it, NDEAM. Each episode in October will focus on different aspects of the current state of employment for individuals with disabilities through the lens of the Americans with Disabilities Act. So before we get started, some quick background and ending. Ending dates back to 1945 when Congress declared the first week of October National Employee the Physically Handicapped Week. Since that time, ending has evolved to include not just people with physical disabilities, but the entire disability community. Now, the emphasis has shifted to focus on competitive employment in the community. The first episode features Senator Bob Casey from Pennsylvania. We were so excited to discuss some of his important legislative initiatives relating to the employment of people with disabilities. It is our hope that each podcast will interest, educate, and motivate you as we celebrate ending 2020. Senator Casey, we are beyond thrilled, truly, that you're able to join us today as we kick off our podcast series celebrating National Disability Employment Awareness Month, or ending. And I just want to take a quick second and also mention and give thanks to your great and fantastic staff for making this happen. Thank you to everyone very much. So in thinking about um, today's conversation, I, we thought it would be really helpful if we, could, if we could start on just a slightly personal note and allow our listeners to get to know you a little bit and your connection to disability rights. Throughout your time in the Senate, you have displayed really true leadership and are absolutely considered a champion for the disability community. And I'm wondering if you might be able to tell us just a little bit about why the advancement of disability rights is so important to you. Well, first, Amanda, thanks for this opportunity. It's, it's great to be part of this uh, celebration of National Disability Employment Awareness Month. And I, I guess for me, it starts um, just when I was growing up. I, it starts with uh, my parents, really. And their... their um, the many lessons they taught me about our own blessings and, and those who uh, had, had uh, disadvantages or obstacles to overcome in life that we had to do everything we could to help them. And I just think that that was just a fundamental bedrock for, for me. My father was a public official, so he was obviously more engaged in some of these issues. But I think it starts there. And if you, if you believe in the promise of America, you have to believe in, and I think you have to be committed to uh, advancing the rights of people with disabilities. It's just, it's consistent with American values. It's not some, some, um, uh, some body of work that's off to the side. It's, it's not only consistent with American values, I think it's in furtherance of those American values that you can advance when you're advancing the rights of people with disabilities. So I think it's that it's a fundamental belief that all people should have equal access to opportunities that that America says that it's supposed to offer or says that it will offer. And we know, unfortunately, from our history that people with disabilities 
uh, often have, have had barriers in their way and um, obstacles to uh, participating in in all aspects of our society. So I've had uh, obviously some uh, opportunities myself as a public official to be able to have an impact on these issues, and we're going to keep uh, keep a focus on this work for as long as the people of Pennsylvania want me to be their senator. Thank you for that. It must be um, must be really amazing to be able to have something that was it sounds like a belief that was really cemented for you in childhood, and then be able to really effectuate change um, and kind of see that belief in action um, through your work in the Senate. Yeah, I'm just fortunate to to have had uh, parents, and I think a community too. I grew up in Scranton, Pennsylvania, Lackawanna County, Northeastern Pennsylvania, and uh, my sense is, and there's no way to compare this, but my sense is that um, over time there's been a recognition in that region um, about the importance of advancing um, the protections for and rights uh, for people with disabilities. And uh, I think my parents reflected that kind of broad consensus. That's really interesting. Thanks for sharing that. So as we were sort of thinking about how we wanted to celebrate National Disability Employment Awareness Month or ending this year, the National Disability Rights Network or NDRN, we decided to use the lens of the Americans with Disabilities Act or the ADA and the goal of economic self-sufficiency as kind of the way that we're thinking about employment for people with disabilities. So more specifically, the ADA states, the nation's proper goals regarding individuals with disabilities are to assure equity of opportunity, full participation, independent living, and economic self-sufficiency for such individuals. And as I was reading that and reflecting upon it, getting ready for today, I was thinking that I, I'm sure that we can all agree that economic self-sufficiency is important to every, every single individual. However, the ADA specifically highlights the import, that importance for individuals with disabilities. So, Senator Casey, I'm wondering why, in your opinion, why, why do you think economic self-sufficiency is so critical for individuals with disabilities? Well, I think first it's part of who we are as human beings. It, You've, you've heard the phrase a lot, the dignity of work. And um, that's, that's um, part of this, uh, part of this, uh, part of the answer is that I think everyone wants to have um, that dignity that comes from work. It comes from uh, doing a job, uh, meeting goals, and uh, earning a living and being able to support yourself. So that, that's, that's a big part of it. And economic self-sufficiency uh, as one of those four goals of the ADA is directly connected, I think, to the broader, um, you know, the broader American dream about being able to support yourself and support your family if you have one and, and have a, uh, it, it's part of having a purpose in life. You're, you're, you're directed towards goals and, and uh, you have, you have a, a focus every day to, to support yourself and to, and to do a particular job. Unfortunately, it's been one of the hardest goals to 
make progress on or to achieve the full measure of the goal. So we've got a lot of work to do. And I, I think that, you know, for people with disabilities, we still have barriers to economic self-sufficiency that are substantial, not the least of which is that we place asset limits on many of the programs that support people with disabilities. I think your listeners will know better than I, or at least as well as I do, that to be able to qualify for programs like Medicaid or Supplemental Security Income, SSI, or SNAP, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance, and many other safety net programs, a person can't have more than $2,000 in assets. That's a way to keep people in poverty, not a way to help them achieve economic self-sufficiency. It just doesn't make sense, but it's part of, it's one of the many barriers in, in their way. So when we consider the ADA more broadly, it prohibited discrimination against people with disabilities, um, but it, it didn't take away every barrier. And much many of the, uh, the current policies make it very difficult for a person with disability to save for their future, whether it's uh, save for a home or save uh, to move to another place, or of course, even to save for an education. So we shouldn't be providing people with supports limit how much or, or limit the uh, how the amount of money they can um, save for the future so we finally had a breakthrough a couple of years ago five years ago now almost it'll be actually it'll be six in uh, de um, December uh, December the 14th to be exact is when the Senate bill passed on ABLE the ABLE Act and uh, you know achieving achieving a better life experience act it's one act that I think is a good start at pulling down some of the policy barriers that uh, have been erected over time, but it's not in and of itself enough. We've got to do more. Here's another uh, example of, of policy, the substantial gainful activity, so-called SGA limit for a person with, with a disability is $1,210 a month, $1,210 a month. Um, if you earn more than that, you're at risk of losing your disability benefits. So it's, again, it's another example of, of a policy not only preventing us from achieving uh, the goal of economic self-sufficiency, but literally keeping people in poverty because you limit how much they can earn. So we've got we've to make it possible for people to earn more than that, $1,210 a month if we're serious about it, ensuring they can be economically self-sufficient. Yeah, thanks for that answer. That was really helpful and, and thoughtful. I, I just wanted to sort of focus in a little bit on ABLE accounts and the ABLE Act that you just mentioned. It's such an important piece of legislation. I'm wondering if you could tell our listeners who might not be that familiar with ABLE accounts, sort of what they are, why in your view they're important, and what your goal was with that piece of legislation. Part of it is it's obviously connected to the goal of economic self-sufficiency, and I think you could also make an argument it's also uh, related to that that sense of dignity that people have that you can you can not only work to do a good job and to provide you for your family and pay your bills and 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 be part of a thriving society in that way, but you can also, if you choose to, set aside money for savings and. Um, one of the one of the provisions of the tax law going back a generation was that 
parents could set aside money for uh, and, and were incentivized to set aside money for higher education for their children. Uh, and that made a lot of sense. So we had the you know, so-called 529 plans around for years. But it was literally the state of the law in the United States of America that if parents had uh, two daughters, one daughter without a disability that they're saving for higher education for, another daughter uh, with a disability where uh, they could open up a 529 account, but what if that daughter for a variety of reasons wasn't going to uh, pursue higher education or the parents didn't think she would? There was no savings vehicle for the, the daughter with a disability for other needs that she would have, not just education, but those I mentioned before, buying a home or buying or, you know, saving for rent for an apartment or being able to buy assistive technology because of her disability. So all kinds of impediments to saving for other purposes other than higher education. So these ABLE accounts are, are a way for people who receive federal disability benefits to save for the future. And uh, one of the basic reasons is that $2,000 limit, as I mentioned. So now ABLE accounts allow persons with a disability to save up to 100000 not 2000 100000 and to open an account, you have to you have to have an acquired you have to have acquired, I should say, your disability before you reach your 26th birthday. We're trying to move that number up into the mid 40s, uh, age age 46. But the uh, the money you save in able accounts has to be used for uh, disability expenses. But that's a pretty broad category. You can, you can um, save for education, moving expenses, I mentioned, if you have a, you're moving for a job, uh, assistive technology, as I referred to earlier, or even a, uh, an accessible vehicle or renovations to make an apartment or a home more accessible, which is often a, a barrier, a costly barrier to people with disabilities. So when we talk about saving money, we often talk about saving for retirement uh, or saving for higher ed. Um, but we save for a lot of reasons and limiting how much a person with a disability can save means that we're taking away their options. Uh, so ABLE accounts make it possible for a person with a disability to plan for their future and, and thereby to, to better their lives. Thank you for that. I think it's fair to say that ABLE accounts have really been a, a game changer for people with disabilities. And I, I can't imagine um, anything that fits more squarely into the theme of economic self-sufficiency. I'd like to quickly turn to another piece of legislation that you introduced. I think that focuses on and enables economic self-sufficiency, but in a, in a different way. And that is the Disability Employment Incentives Act. And I'm wondering if you could um, just tell us a little bit about that and why you, sort of what you think it would mean for um, people with disabilities. Well, first, the Disability Employment Incentive Act provides businesses with incentives to hire people with disabilities. They are incentives that are not just worthy, um, and, and if I can say prove their worth over time, but I think are essential if we're serious about fulfilling or achieving the goals of the Americans with Disabilities Act. So I think that's a, that's um, 
that's critical. And just by way of kind of the background, um, right now business can receive up to a $2,400 tax credit if they hire someone with a disability through their state vocational rehabilitation program. But unfortunately businesses, like a lot of programs that are worthy and, and, and often advance uh, a particular priority, sometimes they're, they're good programs, but, but folks don't take advantage of them. In this case, businesses aren't taking advantage of that tax credit. So one of the, one of the ways to do that is to make it more generous. So I want to more than double that to 5,000 for the first year and continue the tax credit for the second year at 2,500. So take what is now a $2,400 tax credit and make it 5,000 for the first year and then continue it for a little higher at 2,500 for the second year. So that's a, I think it's a better incentive for, uh, for businesses. And it makes a lot of sense to, uh, to, to provide that kind of an incentive. And uh, sometimes the incentives uh, obviously are important. And at the same time, this legislation uh, would provide tax credits to increase the accessibility of a business, both the physical accessibility and the online accessibility. And obviously online accessibility is never has never been more important in the times we're living. So if we were able to pass this legislation, there'd be an opportunity to get a $30,000 tax credit for improvements to accessibility that a business makes. We wish we didn't have to provide incentives, but, but I think it's important to do so in this context. Because sometimes a business will say, well, I want to do that. I want to provide that accessibility, but it, it's, it's costly. So giving them a, a substantial tax credit is, is another way to incentivize those changes. So both, uh, both incentives to hire and incentives to make changes that will increase accessibility can make a big difference for a small business and can create more opportunities for both hiring and accessibility. So I wanted to leave your listeners with the, the bill number because it's, sometimes it's hard to find these bills. The Disability Employment Incentive Act is Senate Bill 255-255. Great. Thank you for that. I know at NDRN we were um, we're excited about that bill. We're absolutely supportive of it, and we think it makes all the sense in the world. So thank you for your work on that. Another bill that, that you've introduced that really looks at sort of the incentive idea, but from a different way, um, is the Transformation to Competitive Employment Act. Whenever I, whenever I talk about this bill, I always say it's aptly named because it's, uh, it is truly transformational, I think. So I'm wondering if you could just tell us why you felt like this was an important piece of legislation. Thanks. I appreciate you highlighting the, the Transformation to Competitive Employment Act, and I'll give the bill number, um, Senate Bill 260. Thank you. Uh, this bill would provide employers who currently pay subminimum wage to people with disabilities with funds to help transition their business model from subminimum wage to at least minimum wage. Um, Again, one of those goals to achieve and, and barriers to uh, tear down. Right now, we're told that about 125,000 people in the country uh, are paid sub-minimum wage. And what we're trying to do here is to protect these jobs and honor their work while also helping their employers to adopt their business model to be one that is 
competitive, uh, a, a different model really, a competitive integrated employment model as opposed to what they have now. And I think it's a recognition, the bill is a recognition, we've got to help them do it. You know, sometimes government is great at, at mandating or directing folks to do something, and sometimes we don't provide enough help to businesses to make that transition. So, so it, this bill would provide them with funding to help them change their business model, transition to minimum wage. Uh, there's obviously a whole other fight to get raise the minimum wage overall, which we have not won yet. That's a, um, I've been in the Senate, uh, I guess, 14 years, and the last time the federal government raised the minimum wage was my first year <laughs> in the in the Senate. So it tells you how even on raising the minimum wage nationally, it's taken us years, still haven't done it yet. But as they as they transition our model from a from a sub minimum wage to a minimum wage business, you'd be able to phase out the sub minimum wage certificates over a six year period. So we don't want to mandate and not give them help. We don't want to mandate and say you have to do it in a you know a one year time frame or a short time window. We give them six years. So I think it's a responsible way to make sure we don't. We, we can help the businesses so we don't lose the jobs and that uh, the work that people with disabilities do is is respected. And one of the most inspiring things or inspiring uh, opportunities I've had is to go to some of these work sites. I haven't been to, you know, 50 of them, but I've been to several. And it's remarkable. You walk into it like, a, for example, I remember being in a big warehouse and in uh, York County, Pennsylvania, you know, right down by the Maryland border. And it's a big county and they've got a lot of manufacturing in that county, a very high percent of manufacturing, which is not true of a lot of places in our state. And um, this warehouse was a very busy place and they were introducing me to some of their workforce, uh, young people that had a disability were working in that warehouse where, where you gotta keep things moving, on-time delivery or movement of, of cargo or material or, or what, you know, what they're, they're moving out the door every day. Uh, has to be geared towards schedules and the, the pace and intensity of a, of a business. And just glowing <laughs> remarks about, about the, 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 uh, the members of the workforce, the, the employees who had a disability, their, their, uh, their work ethic, their, their on-time performance, their dedication, their attitude. I mean, everything you would want in an employee, they're seeing. So over and over again, there, there's evidence over many years now that people with disabilities can do really good work and they can, they can do, and they can progress in that work. They don't have to stay in the same job for years and years. Some might have to because of a, the, the severity of a disability, but many others can advance. So we're, we're trying to indicate through this legislation that we can move to a minimum wage model and, and affirm their, the dignity of their work and, and show them kind of respect that workers should be accorded. Thank you for that. And thank you for your, your leadership on this bill. I know that NGRN and the PNAs have, have done an enormous amount of work around subminimum wage and ending subminimum wage and, and sheltered workshops. We really view, I think you use the word responsible when you talk about this bill. And I think that this bill is absolutely responsible and it looks at 
sort of these issues in a very innovative and comprehensive way. So thank you for your work and leadership on that. I wanted to quickly touch on when we're thinking about this podcast, I, I really don't think that we can have a podcast in this time that celebrates National Disability Employment Awareness Month without considering the times we're in and specifically COVID-19 and the tragic impact on that we've seen on the lives of individuals with disabilities, more specifically kind of narrowing down the effect that that will have on the employment of people with disabilities and as it relates to their economic self-sufficiency. And I'm just wondering, have you have you been hearing things from your constituents kind of about this, so about employment with people with disabilities and economic self-sufficiency during COVID-19, sort of things that keep you up at night or things that weigh, weigh on your mind um, that you'd like to share with our listeners? Yeah, thank you for that question, because uh, there's a lot, of course, at a time like this where you have the worst public health crisis in a century and uh, the kind of economic uh, devastation that has flowed in its wake and we're really in a jobs crisis at, at the same time we're in a public health crisis uh, and that's evident across the board for for everyone we also know that in the midst of that many people with disabilities have been working throughout the pandemic and and obviously putting themselves at risk in many instances because of the work that they do and the job that they have they're often providing essential services and all kinds of settings, grocery stores, hospitals, and many of the services that have remained open during the pandemic. So it's a good example of what we talked about earlier, that the work that's, that uh, people with disabilities engage in is essential and that they do the work reliably and with, with great pride. And in this case, often under real, the real threat of danger coming from the virus. So I, I worry that for others in the disability community, the, re, the, re, the return to work uh, will be slower than than it, than it is for the rest of the population. So you have some working as a, as essential workers on the front lines every day who are putting themselves at risk. That's one problem. And then you have others who may be at home, like a lot of us have been working from a distance, or maybe maybe unemployed too in many instances. But getting them back to work could be a lot slower than, than uh, the rest of us. Uh, we know that after the last uh, economic calamity, the, the Great Recession of about a decade ago, a little more than a decade ago now when it started, but the return to work for people with disabilities never reached the same level as before the recession. And uh, you've seen those numbers on the, the workforce participation rate for people with disabilities. It's always been a lot lower than people who don't have a disability. So that, that's, a, that's a worry, as well as the worry that, that some with a disability would obviously contract the virus and put themselves at, at, uh, at risk. So we've got, we've got a lot of work to do, both to provide better protection for those in the workforce, both people with disabilities and people who don't have disabilities. But we also have, have to undertake, I think, a, a uh, a more focused effort in uh, creating pathways for people with disabilities to get back to work if they're not working now, because they, they're often hardest to transition. And we have, unfortunately, a long history of that, that workforce participation rate being lower, meaning 
people with disabilities are employed at lower levels, but this transition back to work for, for many will, could be especially difficult. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing that with us. Um, and this sort of segues perfectly into uh, my final question as we, as we close up here, um, which is where, um, and you've talked about the ABLE Council and the two pieces of legislation um, where you've really just demonstrated such wonderful leadership and, and a very thoughtful approach to a way to address these issues around employment uh, for individuals with disabilities. And I'm wondering kind of where, where do you think we go from here um, as we try and really fulfill this goal of economic self-sufficiency as laid out in the ADA? Well, as difficult as this time has been and is now and will continue to be for a good while yet, because I, I'm not an epidemiologist or a public health professional, but it's, my gut tells me that, and, and some of the, the reporting tells me that we're going to be, uh, you know, we're going to continue to have to wrestle this virus to the ground. And, uh, we hope for a vaccine as soon as possible, but it has to be done the right way and it has to be safe safe and effective and, and it has to be the distribution of it has to go well but you know we're, we're going to be dealing with the virus for a good while yet uh, months if not many months i think the economic crisis for many will be uh, unfortunately a crisis that will last for years not months and uh, that's because even when the unemployment rate goes down, as I'm sure it will between now and the end of the year, there'll still be a, a group of uh, workers out there who will be hardest to employ or hardest to, to re-employ. And we're, we're going to have to undertake uh, brand new approaches. We, we're going to have to think, think of ourselves as coming out of the Great Depression, not the Great Recession. Um, so I've got a lot of ideas about uh, resuscitating the Works Progress Administration type uh, jobs program. And we're going to have to literally use, I believe, one of several things we're going to have to do is to use federal dollars to employ people directly. Now, some in Washington won't want to hear that. They'll, say, they'll criticize me for it. But we can't sit around and hope that incentives and, and the private sector uh, uh, magically bring folks back to work. One of the best ways to get people back to work is to hire them. <laughs> at least that's at least my view, and that that applies obviously to, to getting uh, creating opportunities as well for with uh, for people with disabilities. And one of the things we've learned in, in the last six months is that much of the the work we do can can uh, be undertaken remotely. We've all become uh, uh, most people have become much more familiar with how to work remotely and to a certain degree with a lot of success. Um, I'm, I hope and I think we should strive to make sure that that means that many people with disabilities will have a greater chance to work and that employers will realize that remote work and work that requires accommodations as the, the ADA uh, enshrined can that, that any work that requires accommodations can be just as productive as working in a physical office. That uh, workers of all kinds, including people workers with disabilities, can contribute substantially to the, the bottom line of a company by, by working remotely. 
and having uh, having a few accommodations in place. We also s uh, still need to ensure that all paths to economic self-sufficiency are clear. We need to eliminate policies like the uh, so-called low SGA limit. We need to incentivize employers to hire people with disabilities. As I said, uh, we talked about the, the bill that we have. We need to make sure that uh, the resources to accommodate people with disabilities are available in their workplaces. So even though we've come a long way in what I guess is now 32 years since the first National Disability Employment Awareness Month was celebrated, we still have a ways to go. Um, I don't know how long the road is, but we know that we're still on the road and we probably can't see the end of the road. Uh, we haven't met the goal of economic self-sufficiency, one of the, the four goals of the ADA, so we've got some, some work to do. But I appreciate you and uh, NDRN and the millions of disability advocates and stakeholders around the country who are laboring in the vineyards, to borrow, borrow a line from the scriptures, you're laboring in that vineyard every day to help people with disabilities and uh, I look forward to continuing to work with you. Well, thank you so much. I know as I've just listened to you um, sort of talk about your thoughts for the future, I'm, I'm heartened and energized. I just know that you've been shown such leadership and will continue to do so. And on behalf of NDRN and all the PNAs, we are incredibly grateful to you for all your work around disability rights. So thank you so much Amanda, for joining us you. today. We really appreciate your time. Thank you. Hello. I'm Kurt Decker, Executive Director of NDRN. Thank you for celebrating National Disability Employment Awareness Month with us. We hope you continue tuning in all month as we talk more about the importance of employment and the dignity of work.